This is Maxine and the Planets Unknown, a sci-fi audiobook in podcast form. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 19 of Maxine and the Planets Unknown, written, recorded, and produced by me, Brad Lawrence, in a tiny little room in Brooklyn during a pandemic. Oh, we, we all know that. Uh, but I wanted to say a quick word about this episode and the first chapter in this episode, which uh, some early material in that chapter might be taken as a critique of uh, modern policing in America. And it is. Um, Science fiction uses the future to criticize the present. That is a time-honored tradition and one that does not need any defending by me. It's part of it, and it's part of this. I do think that my critique is presented in a nuanced way that is entirely organic to the story. And it would not be there if it was not organic to the story. The last thing I would do is shoehorn in political opinion just to have it in there. But it is natural to the story. It does have a place in there. And I think it's very important and defines Sumner's character. So, it's there. We all know it. I've acknowledged it. It's on purpose. We have to demilitarize the police, people. Uh, And that's the most blunt way I'm going to put that. And it's not going to be that blunt in the story. Uh, But um, if it bothers you, I don't care. That's the way it is. So uh, we're going to go on to the episode now. This is episode 19, chapters 42 and 43. And this is a long one, uh, this this episode, so buckle in and uh, enjoy it. So, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Maxine and the Planets Unknown, Chapter 42. One thing that successful law enforcement and military training regiments have in common is an emphasis on quickly adjusting to whatever circumstance you find yourself in and remaining calm no matter how bizarre or unprecedented the situation might be. This is why, when confronted with the enormous and apparently angry monster out of a horror VR, neither Sumner nor Laurent immediately sprinted for the nearest hole or just turned tail and ran as fast as possible in the opposite direction. They both stood stock still as their training and experience kicked into motion, allowing them to begin a rapid internal assessment of what was in front of them. But, while their reactions were very similar on the surface, different things were happening inside their heads. It had always been Sumner's belief that combat training was not an essential part of a small-town sheriff's job. And if it was, then there was something deeply wrong with your town, or with your sheriff. His philosophy held that your job as a sheriff or a sheriff's deputy was to bring calm and reason to situations where calm and reason had fallen apart. You were the center that must hold. And if people looked to you and you were adding uncertainty to a situation instead of subtracting it, say perhaps by beating the crap out of someone, then they would not think of you as someone to call when they needed peace to be restored. They would think of you as someone to call when they wanted the crap beat out of people. That was a business that Sumner had no desire to be in. 
Being someone who took responsibility very, very seriously, he had done a lot of research as a young deputy into law enforcement techniques. He had been encouraged by this by Sheriff Abidway, who had provided him with books, VRs, Omninet courses, and flat-screen films on law enforcement going back centuries. There were a great many lessons for a young deputy to take from all of that material, but one that had stood out for Sumner was that if you train and equip peace officers like warriors, then the job becomes war and not peace. Many an Earth civilization had gotten themselves into trouble by thinking that the way to deal with their disgruntled citizenry was with force and domination. Those civilizations did not tend to make it intact to the age in which humans began to fling themselves out to other planets. What they missed was that the job of the military is to deal with a threat to society, and that is what they are equipped to do. Law enforcement is meant to deal with the citizens of a society. The minute you arm law enforcement the way you would the military and let it treat a society's citizens like a threat is the exact minute that a citizenry should become a threat to that society. The lessons were hard learned by civil structures that came later and the line between law enforcement and the military were, in ensuing centuries, clearly drawn and inviolate. Enough cities had burned that people stopped trying to make one behave like the other, or vice versa. Certainly, Sumner did not feel like he needed to worry about single-handedly bringing down the whole town. But a bidway had pressed on him that he would likely be the first sheriff of the colony's planet-side existence. He would do things, set standards and practices that would last decades, if not centuries. It was up to him to establish that law enforcement was exactly that, and that it was not combat. You were there to help the townspeople, not to control them. You were not a soldier. But of course, these things flow both ways. If you train someone to be an officer of the peace and not a combatant, they will approach all hostile situations from that point of view. And if you do that long enough to become sheriff, it will undoubtedly become fairly ingrained. Even when confronted with something totally outside of all your law enforcement training or your jurisdiction, like, say, some kind of howling alien armadillo ape the size of a man with teeth and claws like kitchen knives. The beast leapt off the rise from where it first appeared and landed in the stream bed with a splash and a chest-rumbling growl. It was swaying on all fours with its head low, its oddly wide-set eyes glancing back and forth between Sumner and Laurent. Sumner put one hand out toward the thing, palm down, in a gesture that was meant to be calming. Laurent, the combat-trained lieutenant, eased out of her place behind Sumner and started to circle around to his right without saying a word. Instinctually, Sumner started to ease toward the thing, talking to it using the low, calm tones that were part of his conflict resolution training. Okay, buddy. Let's just take it easy. 
Everything is going to be all right. This is the exact right way of dealing with an upset civilian, a drunk husband, or even someone having a violent episode that needed to be brought under control. That was not what this was. This was an animal whose simple brain was no longer entirely its own. It was an extension of something else, an outside force that was certainly a threat. This put the snarling armadillo ape squarely under Laurent's purview. She was a soldier after all, and she had already begun to maneuver the conditions of the conflict to her advantage. She eased back and away, silent and withdrawn, as Sumner moved forward and talked, keeping an open posture. Her hope was that the creature would see Sumner as near and loud, and her as far and quiet, and would translate that into seeing Sumner as the more immediate threat. Basically, within seconds, she had assessed Sumner's usefulness and put him to work in the most optimal role she could see for him. He was a distraction. He was bait. It worked. Before Sumner even had time to shout, the creature was rushing him. It made a couple of slamming motions in the water with its fists as it propelled itself forward. But as it got closer, it came up and started slashing wildly with its claws. They raked the air just in front of where the sheriff kept his internal organs. Sumner backed up clumsily, staying just centimeters ahead of disembowelment. Then the beast stumbled and faltered just for a second, and Sumner, finally seeing that talking him down was not an option, dropped low. When the armadillo ape came back up, Sumner swept in under his reach, lodged his shoulders into the monster's gut, and wrapped his arms around its upper thighs. The notion was a sound one, get the beast off its feet, except that it weighed a ton and when Sumner tried to pull its legs out from under it, nothing happened. The full force of his shoulder, powered by his pistoning legs, hadn't thrown the beast's balance off at all, and Sumner just came to a sad and sudden stop. He had just enough time to register the greasy fur against his cheek and the smell like old fetid carpet when he felt two meaty fists slam into his back. Two things happened simultaneously. The air rushed out of his lungs, and Sumner slammed face down into the stream bed. When his empty lungs reflexively drew in, Sumner got a lung full of water. Before he could worry about the very real danger of drowning, the creature had sunk a handful of claws into the meat of Sumner's shoulder and flipped him over. It bared a row of thick and vicious-looking teeth, some pointed and long, others square and edged. Wants to get to the vitals, Sumner thought, sputtering and feeling thick. The creature drew back a clawed paw for a killing move, and this is when Laurent had her moment. Once Sumner had taken the monster's attention, Laurent had found the animal's blind spot and stayed in it trying to identify the thing's vulnerable areas, hopefully before it did any permanent damage to the good sheriff. One unarmored spot she had fixed on was right up under its forelimb, 
which at that moment it had raised in preparation to slash open Sumner and get at the good bits. But before he could bring down the killing blow, Lorat had swept in and brought her club right up into the creature's underarm with all of her force. The beast winced left, coming off Sumner curled into a kind of sideways comma. When it spun around to face Laurent, it got at the jagged end of her club directly into its left eye. There was a shriek and a snort and a shake of the head before the lieutenant brought the club back around and slammed it into the unarmored place where the creature's neck met its jaw. There was an audible crack. The creature lurched and swung out at Laurent, but it missed. Sumner was gasping for breath and trying to get a hold of what was happening. Laurent was coming in at the creature with the club. She had a clear advantage and she meant to press it. But something in her military precision and discipline was beginning to slide. She could feel the red rage at the edge of her vision. The beast lashed out again, but this time he made contact. But it was just a disoriented swing. Its forearm caught her shoulder and it knocked her off her stride, but she kept her feet. Most of what it did was dislodge her self-control. Then Laurent was just hammering the thing with the club. She let out a guttural roar and then she was bringing the hunk of wood down on the thing's neck and shoulders and head with unrelenting fury. Her vision was cascading blacks and reds and blinding whites and her ears were a cavern of screeching howls, some of which might have been her own. Sumner came back to his senses to see Laurent's onslaught. Every muscle stood out on her lean neck and shoulders, and her eyes were empty, but for a kind of rage the sheriff had never seen before in anyone. She was hammering the thing into jelly. What had begun as jarring cracks and smacks had turned into sickeningly thick thuds as she thrashed away. Blood and scales from the thing's armor were clinging to the club and flying through the air. Then the club broke. It only took a second for Laurent to adjust to this new situation and turn the splintered wood around in her hand, clearly intending to turn it into a stabbing weapon. But that brief moment was all the beast needed. With what Sumner assumed must be the last of its strength, it lashed out and sent Laurent sprawling into the stream. Then it collapsed backwards. Sumner got to his feet, barely, and started shuffling toward the fallen lieutenant. He'd shuffle run between the two prone combatants when Laurent hauled herself to an elbow. She looked like she was about to wave Sumner off when her eyes suddenly went wide and she shouted at him, Look out! Sumner spun on his heels just in time to take two of the beast's railroad spike claws right into his gut. The monster dug in weakly and searing pain shot through the sheriff's entire body. His vision went white, every nerve lit up to overload. It was enough to kick Sumner's desire to survive into its highest gear. And he pulled back and punched the creature in the armored temple right behind its ruined eye with all of his might. The bones in his hand made a sickening sound like twigs snapping. And the beast, already half limp from its battle with Laurent, went totally slack. Its claws slid out of the gash it had torn in Sumner's abdomen 
and both of them collapsed into the stream, the water around them going pink and cloudy with their blood. Then Laurent was there. She dragged the sheriff off. Her demeanor had changed once again. Now in field triage mode, she hauled Sumner over to the stream bank and laid him there. He led her, having suddenly gone weak and listless. Laurent laid him down, and without a word she grabbed a rock off the shore and then disappeared from Sumner's line of sight. He heard a sound of splashing water and a chunk sound that he assumed was the caving in of a skull. The sun was in his eyes, but he didn't seem to have the strength to move his head. Then Laurent was back, looming over him, blood splattered across her shoulder and jaw. Sheriff, stay with me, come on! Sumner grunted, and with a soft arm he reached up, patted the pocket where the all-in-one med kit was. Laurent got it. She reached in. He saw her pull it out and start examining it, trying to find something that she thought might save his life. Then the color around him faded to browns and grays. Laurent looked back at him curiously, and everything went black. Chapter 43 When the Selena Simons series began, Selena was 11 years old. When it ended, she was 17. Selena had aged roughly in time with the first generation of Selena Simon readers, though it was not precise. If a child had been 11 when they opened book 1, they would have been 21 when they started book 8. But by that time, they were hooked, and they would have devoured the book just as avidly had they been 121. In fact, the book had transcended age boundaries almost from the first word. Initially, this was a kind of, I bought this book to read to my kids, and I gotta say, I, her fully adult parent, am enjoying it almost as much as she is. The almost was always in italics. Soon, though, everyone dropped the pretense that they were reading the books just to their kids, especially as their kids started to get old enough to read the books by themselves, and their parents were still reading them. By the time the last book came out, the notion that the intended audience was children, or at least just children, had long gone by the wayside. Accordingly, the books had, over the years, gotten much more nuanced, much more complicated, and a lot darker. And, by the time the series came to its completion, so had Selena Simon. Selena Simon had begun her journey as a precocious child whose precociousness had gotten her into what the book treated as quite a fix. The premise itself, if treated with any sort of adult understanding of consequences, would have been properly horrifying right from the start. But when you are writing for children, and your main character is a child, 
You have the option of trading the terrors of being ripped away from your family and community and thrown headlong into a situation that would, in any real-world context, result in an excruciating death, a death that would only be quick if the universe is being exceptionally merciful, as the beginning of a grand adventure. But that is impossible to sustain as your character ages to a point where, continuing to ignore how much she had lost and would continue to be denied, might make her seem either cognitively impaired or sociopathic. So, Selina started to grow and change. Much was made of this in academic circles and on OmniNet discussion groups. People charted her journey from adventurous little girl to emotionally scarred young adult with meticulous and sometimes ghoulish fascination, dissecting each trauma and misfortune for the full extent of its impact on Selena, as well as Mr. Humphreys and the other companions and acquaintances that came into their orbit over the course of the eight books. What kept this from simply being a multi-volume study on the emotional destruction of a child came down to two things. First and foremost was Selena Simon herself. Over the course of her journey through the stars, Selena managed to translate the curiosity and optimism that had been her defining traits in the first book into a moral and philosophical core that was only tempered and strengthened by every ordeal that she and her friends survived. What began as a belief that there had to be more hope and possibility in the universe for her personally eventually became a certainty that there was more hope and possibility for everyone, and that the greatest crime one could perpetrate against another was to rob them of that hope. And furthermore, if you had hope and someone else did not, it was up to you to give some of your hope to the person who needed it. To Selena, the opposite of hope and possibility was control and confinement. And this brings us to the second thing that made the books more than just the ongoing misfortunes of some kid. It's one thing to tell, it's another thing to show. Often the easiest way to show in the context of a kid's adventure book is to present a villain that stands against everything you want your main character to stand for. This can easily slide into cliché and formula in the hands of an inept storyteller, but that was not B.A. White. It is hard to say what B.A. White's original intent had been when it came to the character of Commissioner Zednot. In the first book, he appeared as a weasel and a fellow citizen of Managerius alongside Mr. Humphreys, or more to the point, diametrically opposed to Mr. Humphreys. For every inch that Mr. Humphreys was a kind of adventurer and curiosity seeker, Commissioner Zednot was someone who loathed the unknown and the foreign and those who would stray from their assigned roles. Whereas Mr. Humphreys was brash and declarative, Zednot was passive-aggressive and manipulative. Mr. Humphreys sought to light out for parts unknown without the slightest concern for the opinions or the preferences of his fellow managerians, 
whom he nonetheless wished well and the best of luck, etc., etc. Zednot wished no one well, and luck was not something to be doled out to just anyone. So far as he was concerned, everyone should know their place and stay in it until someone in authority instructed them otherwise. And he loathed the idea of someone choosing their own path and doing their own thing to such a degree that the irrepressible Mr. Humphreys was the bane of his existence, especially since what Commissioner Zednot was the commissioner of was building permits and transport licenses. Mr. Humphreys' hand-built transport to the stars had neither a permit to be built nor a license to transport anyone anywhere. Had Managerius been a society that could stomach the impoliteness of enforcing the variety of codes and moors that Mr. Humphreys had been rude enough to blow right through in the construction of his monstrosity, things might have been different. But, as it was, the most they could muster up was getting a few police animals of the sort that had been dispatched to investigate Selena's crash landing in the park to go out there and jab the homemade rocket ship with their clubs and demand explanations. Mr. Humphreys was more than happy to provide explanations. Long discourses followed on the rigorous demands of space travel and how each component of the ship in question had been designed to contend with them. This was science, and he was eager to educate the constables on that most hallowed of subjects. The entire time, Commissioner Zednot would be standing around wondering why they gave the police clubs if it was not to demolish the irascible badger's eyesore and perhaps the badger himself. He seemed certain that any minute now, the bobbies would bring down the hammer and start doling out the beatings, in spite of the fact that they had never done anything like that in any situation in the past. But each time it ended the same way. The police, having had their authority out-talked and out-scienced, would push their bucket-shaped hats back up onto their heads with the tip of their clubs and mumble something along the lines of, Well, Governor, that certainly was a detailed explanation. Uh, it seems everything is in order here. Uh, guess we should uh, be moving along then. Zednot would stand there, mouth agape at their incompetence. Then, Mr. Humphreys would add some new level or addition to his impermissible death trap, and Commissioner Zednot would take another run at it. With every bureaucratic defeat, Commissioner Zednot only became more obsessed. Why couldn't this badger know his place and stay in it? He might have been surprised to find out that that was exactly what Mr. Humphreys thought he was doing. Mr. Humphreys was no misanthrope. He absolutely believed in the essential good of civic duty and participation. He also felt 
that one of the most vital roles that any society must fill is that of the individualist adventurer who seeks to expand the boundaries of what constitutes that society in the first place. He felt that when one had no place in one's community, it was up to them to build one, permits or no permits, not in spite of that community, but for the good of that community. If no one could ever leave Managerius to go on an adventure, then it was not a home, but merely a prison without walls. He loved the place too much to stay there and by his staying make it a worse place to be. Mr. Humphreys was absolutely certain that his attempts to launch himself off the planet would do the planet itself no end of benefit. But, Commissioner Zednot had not asked Mr. Humphreys any such questions. He had spoken to Mr. Humphreys, or more to the point, at him, but he had never asked him a question. He simply demanded that Mr. Humphreys do as Commissioner Zednot thought he ought, and then was seething with fury when this did not happen. Then, Selina Simon landed in the park and almost immediately took up with the wayward badger. From Zed Knott's reaction to this, you might have thought that Mr. Humphreys had called Selina straight down from the sky for the sole purpose of spiting him personally. When the two of them began retrofitting her unsightly and revoltingly foreign space capsule to Mr. Humphreys' grotesque creation, the good commissioner took his first, but not nearly his last, step over the line from obsession into true insanity. But, even the insane can make and execute plans. And so he did. His plan was to sneak aboard the Exeter 3, and then, once they were in flight, he would sabotage the ship so severely that Mr. Humphreys would be forced to turn around and return to Managerius. But first, he would force the Badger to jettison the repellent alien element into space, thus guaranteeing that one good thing would come of this. The fact that he knew nothing about the ship, much less what would constitute debilitating sabotage and what would be merely self-destructive, or that expelling a human into space was murder, none of this was going to deter him. Hence, the insanity part. In the end, his sabotage, remarkably or improbably, did not result in the three of them dying brutally. It did, however, fling them out of the very wormhole that had brought Selina to Managerius and that they had re-entered in an attempt to take her back home. This would be the event that began what would become parallel journeys for Mr. Humphreys and Selina and their inevitable arch-nemesis, Commissioner Zednot. But for the first two, that journey would be an adventure that would, through both trial and discovery, affirm their core notions about hope, possibility, and perseverance for them and for their audience. For Zednot, it was a journey into madness and abomination. After they get tossed from the wormhole, they land on a planet that is at war. The war is between a civilization of creatures that had, in their original form, been something like a cross between an angel and a bunny rabbit. 
and their neighbors, a minority of short, squat, gruff miners who seem to be equal parts scar tissue, hair, and dirt. It is in the latter's territory at the Exeter Three crash lands. When the miners find the three aliens and offer their assistance, Zednot is immediately repulsed and runs for the hills, certain that people so unkempt and ragged could not possibly be any good at all. Selena is also initially put off by the miners, but Mr. Humphreys is immediately won over by their generosity and convinces her to come along to their village and to treat them with respect. When they get to the village, they are served a simple but abundant dinner, and they learn the history of the planet's conflict. It turns out, the Bunny Angels are the original inhabitants whereas the mining group were refugees that landed on the planet while trying to find a safe harbor. Over a million years ago. From the first instant, the bunny angels had treated the miners as unwanted foreigners. As centuries stretched into millennia, the bunny angels had not only held on to this view, but it had deepened. By the time the Exeter Three landed, it had become the basis for the Bunny Angels' entire culture and the motivating force behind all of their actions. This is why they no longer looked like Bunny Angels at all. As their paranoia and resentment of the miners became more entrenched, the Bunny Angels had fortified their cities. Then they armed their people. Then they began to modify their people, physically, replacing body parts with armor and weapons and the mechanical things of war. All the while, the miners worked their land and carved out an elaborate underground world that was not only out of sight of the bunny angels, who had by now become bunny borgs, but also in no way interfered with their surface world activities. But the miners being out of sight only increased the Bunnyborg's certainty that they were up to no good, and so they further mutilated themselves in the service of combating a foreign invader, who was behaving much more like an overly polite neighbor, and further isolated themselves behind higher and higher walls. How all of this worked out in the end was riveting. Uh, it certainly enthralled everyone with access to the Omninet for several generations, but that's not what's important here. What is important here is that the last we see of Commissioner Zednot in Book 1 is in Chapter 6, less than halfway through the book, when he is being hauled off by Bunnyborg sentries who take him rightly as the kind of foreigner that he himself would have wanted hauled off had they been back on Managerius. Thus, Commissioner Zednot serves his role as a device that sets the plot into motion, and once that is done, he is removed from the action with a hand-waving gesture toward the symmetry of just desserts. It is a treatment that would make one assume that he had never been intended as anything beyond a throwaway character in the first place. But the success of Book 1 created a clamor for a Book 2, and B.A. White, whether out of an abundance of vision or a temporary lack of it, decided to reintroduce the lost weasel, Zednot, as the main adversary of Book 2, Selena Simon and the planet of sea and smoke. Zednot, however, had been through some changes.
At first, it was somewhat played for comedy. Zed not appears, and he is different in two fundamental ways. First, he has been just a bit cybernetically altered, in ways reminiscent of the bunny borgs from the planets unknown. These are small things. One ear is now a bit radar dishy, and the two middle digits on his left paw are mechanical. Otherwise, the cybernetic components that he wears have a kind of ad hoc, trying to fit in sort of feel. Parts that have no obvious purpose and seem kind of slapped on, more prop than genuine article, like stapling an old circuit board to a cardboard box to create the visual idea of a computer. The second thing that is different about him is that he is completely hairless. It is hard to say how intentional this was on the part of B.A. White. But the shaved weasel of the Selena Simon books caused at first blush a run of crude jokes up and down the Omninet chat boards, followed by a lot of speculation, some merely speculative, but most angry and accusatory, of what the author's point had been when presenting a talking phallic symbol as a main villain in a book whose protagonist was a pubescent girl. Was it a dirty joke? Was it a lewd insinuation? Was it a comment on the treacheries of coming of age? B.A. White was characteristically silent on the matter, and it did not hurt sales even a little, so the publishing company was content to also remain silent on the matter. In The Planet of Sea and Smoke, Zednot is a much debased character, having become the thing he despised most, a foreigner who has no control over the world around him. However, what becomes clear over the course of the book is that he has learned how to survive. Clearly, there was something more to Zednot than just hate and a xenophobe's terror of having their position supplanted. The character also had a reserve of cunning and a keen sense of vengeance. While he had been stripped of his power and his fur, he had held on to his notion of his own inherent moral superiority, and that his fall from the lofty position that had, that had allowed him to wield it was something that someone would have to pay for. And he was willing to play the long game to make sure that happened. So, in that book, he takes on a kind of Iago role, working unseen, by Selina and Mr. Humphreys at least, to undermine their efforts with the people and creatures they encounter. This sets up a dynamic that carries over to books 3, 4, and 5. For every civilization that Selina and Mr. Humphreys encounter on their journeys, there seems to be two sides. First, a side that welcomes the travelers and is eager to share their culture and to provide whatever hospitality and help they can. Then there's another side. The other side is always the dark side, rooted in the fear of the unknown and the uncertainty about the future that is universal to the non-psychic and the non-immortal, but expresses itself uniquely in the specific context of every culture. Zednot always close on the heels of the companions, would always find this dark side, plant himself there, and begin manipulating the unsuspecting souls who Selina and Mr. Humphreys were relying upon. He is also learning, as he goes, the kinds of control and manipulation that people respond to, adding these things to his repertoire. 
This often takes on the form of actual physical alterations to his body. Having already broken the seal of his bodily integrity, Commissioner Zednot begins to construct himself anew in the service of his binary goal of establishing control over everything he can reach and punishing those that would deny him that control. As the Commissioner became more and more of a monster, Selina was becoming the hero, in more than the sense that her name was in the title of each book. She became someone who represented a set of values and ideals within a universe of the novels. For at each turn, she found herself opposing the machinations of Zednot. At first, every planet they found themselves on was just a way station on their never-ending journey to get her home, and the problems they found themselves attempting to solve were merely a sidebar. The polite thing to do as a guest on a world not your own was to help out in any way possible, after all. But then they became aware that Zednot was following them and attempting to use the innocent people they encountered to his advantage, manipulating whatever weakness the native population of a planet might have in an attempt to do harm to Selina and Mr. Humphreys. This all became clear to them halfway through Book 5, The Planet of Frozen Time, and Selina was forced to make a choice. They could keep wandering aimlessly from planet to planet in a vain attempt to reunite her with her family, all the while dragging this scourge behind them to menace each new planet. Or they could try to stop Zednot once and for all. This is the moment for most people when Selina went from being merely the protagonist of the books to the hero of the books. And what Selina learned, as she turned herself to deliberately combat the evil that Commissioner Zednot represented, was that she too had changed over the course of their adventures. The bunny borgs of the planets unknown had taught her to look beyond the surface to see how hate and fear harmed the person who hated as much as the person who was hated. The plight of the Porvanoids in the Planet of Sea and Smoke showed her the importance of never letting fear control your decision-making. In the Planets of Cold Fire, she had learned that tradition could be just a cover for oppression. In the Planets that Wander, she had learned to accept death and to carry on in spite of its inevitability. And in the Planet of Frozen Time, when they encountered the beautiful, but vulnerable city of Felagariox. She learned to take responsibility for the consequences of her actions, even those that were unintended. In the aftermath of the city's destruction, when Zed not fully revealed himself, and she saw the disparate pieces of his new and monstrous self that he had picked up along the way, and how they reflected a kind of funhouse mirror of her and Mr. Humphrey's own journey and their own evolution, she saw that he was her responsibility. Obviously, this is a shortened version of a much more far-reaching journey. Each of these books were long, and they only got longer as public demand grew louder. B.A. White began to layer in subplots and side characters, smaller arcs and parallel plot lines to say that, oh, Selena learned this and Selena learned that, is to truly undersell the phenomenon. 
The author also never shied away from what they were up to. They were building a character and a lived world for that character. And like any world, there was loss, and that had to be encountered and dealt with. And the character would, would either grow stronger for overcoming that loss, or they would allow that loss to warp them. They would either learn empathy, or they would learn certainty. Selena lost her family and her home, and whatever limited future she had imagined for herself. In the end, that would allow her to recognize loss and pain in others. And whenever she could, she would turn her quest for hope and possibility in the face of deprivation into a shared quest with the people she encountered. And certainly, the temptation to give in to bitterness, to let what the universe had taken from her and the costs that had mounted up, overwhelm her ability to make moral and unselfish choices was ever-present especially after the loss of her right arm at the end of The Planet of Seven Seers. She was forced to choose the right path and over and over again, and it never became easy. But she always did it. Her loss turned her into a hero, a protector, and more importantly, into a friend. Because that was what she chose. Commissioner Zednot lost his petty power and a little bit of dignity and almost immediately turned into a monster. He chose resentment and bitterness, and from there it was just a question of how monstrous he would become. By the end of the series, Book 8, The Planet of the Unforgotten, that was pretty monstrous indeed. By the time they faced off on the Planet of Desolation, it was just Selena against Zednot, and the army of reanimated slaves that he had filled with cloned-out portions of his own hate. Selena, having sacrificed a piece of herself to pull the last of the fufflums from the acid void, having lost Mr. Humphreys, who had sacrificed himself to clear the way for Selena to wage this final fight, and having closed off the wormhole so that all the planets would be safe from Zednot, and so that none of her remaining friends could sacrifice themselves at her side, having sacrificed so much... Selena faced the conglomerated juggernaut of death and obscenity that Commissioner Zednot had become. Without getting too deep into it, it was quite an ending. People loved it. The Omninet was flooded with tear-filled reaction VRs from fans around the colonized galaxy. There was a collective sigh of relief on the part of all the academics that had already based so much of their professional credibility on the series' cultural impact and on the part of all the entertainment executives who were terrified the bottom would fall out if the ending sucked. There had been so much writing on this thing, making a solid landing, that when the release of the final book was delayed for five days, some marketing genius thought it'd be best to have it released just one more weekend closer to Christmas, the Martian stock market dipped. It was a smash success, however and all the merchandising across all the platforms sold out across the entire system. Almost. From the beginning, every version of Selena Simon, from the 11-year-old in book one to the 16-year-old that opened book seven, every version generated stuff. 
images, VR loops, t-shirts, mugs, bedspreads, tattoos, shower curtains, anything you could think of, there was a picture of Selena Simon in one of those five years plastered across it. A new book would come out and the galaxy would be flooded with that book's Selena and all of the accompanying references, memes, and Easter eggs to let anyone and everyone know that you got the books, you understood them deeply, and had already read the latest one and picked out the culturally resonant points. These multiple Selenas were mixed and matched and pastiched and mashed up to the point where half the images and products one might come across were a chaos that turned the narrative timeline into a backwards knot. For each of these first seven books, Selena's merchandise and memes and quotes and fan uses of her image stayed neck and neck with Mr. Humphrey's theme detritus. After that was Commissioner Zednot, then followed the cranky robot Zarkwonger Q, who would make repeat irascible appearances between books three and six, and the continuity-rattled Time Ranger, Felsen Axion, who first showed up in Book 5 and then made a much-lauded return in Book 7. But, in the lead, had always been Mr. Humphreys and Selina Simon herself, up until the age of 16. At 17, the age she was in Book 8, Selina Simon and the Planet of the Unforgotten, there was a sudden and steep drop-off. It was across the board, both in official merchandise as well as in fan-made stuff. Selena, in her final form, was not an identity anyone seemed to want to identify with. And again, everyone loved the book. But it was as if no one wanted to see this Selena in themselves, the battle-scarred Selena, the Selena with the grafted-on arm and the distant stare, the Selena with the long scar down her back from the sword of the Obsidian Ice Knight, the Selena who had watched Mr. Humphreys disintegrate, the Selena who still believed that hope was the birthright of every living thing, but that had to hold on to her own while everything besides hope had been stripped from her cruelly. Certainly, that Selena was triumphant. She made it to the end with her essential beliefs intact, and she had returned to her family and the Walter. She'd made it back home after saving the world from a monster that only she could defeat. But her family did not recognize her when she arrived. They accepted it was her when the Walter's doctor was able to confirm her identity, and they were relieved to have her back in whatever shape they got her. But she was as distant from them as she was from the little girl who had zipped off into space with all of her limbs in their proper place. Or maybe it was just that no one wanted to identify with Selena, whose adventures were over. There were, of course, articles and papers written on the phenomenon, but none of them were satisfying enough to warrant discussion here. Whatever the case, it was clear, if unspoken, that Oxalus had picked up on this essential truth of the Selena Simon fandom. Because 
When it chose to use Selena as a guise for Maxine, it was not the triumphant Selena. It was not the final Selena, the one whose hope and courage were founded on hard-won experience. Nor did it choose the Selena that had opened the books, the clever, resilient, but wide-eyed and naive little girl. The Selena that Maxine found herself staring at in the shop window was the 15-year-old Selena. She looked into her eyes, into Selena's eyes, and smiled nakedly. She was suddenly awash in the wonder of this thing she had secretly and childishly wanted her entire life. She found herself instantly transported back to the warmest and most secure place she had ever known, that corner of her imagination that the Selena Simon series had been nourishing throughout all of her most formative years. She finally felt at home. It did not occur to Maxine that the Selena that Oxalis, who she was still thinking of as Mr. Humphreys, had chosen for her was the version that opened Book 5, The Planet of Frozen Time, the one that hadn't had to choose her own course yet, the one that was still only a protagonist and not yet a hero, the one who still had her hardest adventures ahead of her. This has been Maxine and the Planets Unknown by Brad Lawrence. Intro music, Bumbling by Pictures of the Floating World. Outro music, Children by the Creek by Chad Crouch. Thank you for listening.